uh, open your Bibles to Mark chapter 7. This is where we'll be looking, um, not just today, but for the next few weeks. Mark chapter 7, verses 14 through 22. <clears throat> As you can see, there's a new series that we're kicking off here. Here there be monsters. Emery is terrified of monsters, and I'm not really sure, I mean, well, I'm sure why. I mean, monsters are supposed to be scary, but she's uh, really scared of them, even though she's never really encountered them. And we don't watch scary, she doesn't watch scary movies. We don't read, like, you know, we don't pull out Stephen King novels and read them to her before bed or something. I mean, we're relatively good parents. We protect her from these things, and yet she has had me recently shoving blankets behind um, her dresser because she's afraid of the shadows, like the shadows are going to come out and and, uh, and so this is, and in fact, we've, we've, all of you have had, I've talked to some of you, uh, I think it was, Bill was sharing me, with me um, anti-monster dust or something like that. Spray, spray. We have um, the magical hat of protection. This is her under the magical hat of protection. Um, it's, it's, like a, it's like a monster filter. I'm not sure what it is that it does, but that is her asleep with her magical hat of protection. And so... <laughs> that's, that's what that is. We all have, we, we've all been there. If you've been a parent, you've dealt with a monster problem. If you think back to your own childhood, you know, we think of the monster problem. You probably were afraid of something at some point. And this is kind of a universal thing, which I find to be very fascinating. Universally, we have these, these fears. And to me, they're manifestations of what we know is really going on in the world. Because we don't need monster movies to tell us that there are monsters out there. As we watched the news this week, and we saw a shooter go into uh, uh, the community college there in Oregon, and, and kill people, uh, not randomly though, but asking specifically, are you a Christian, and then shooting these people because of that. I mean, we know there are monsters out there. We know that the world is a dangerous place. And these manifestations, though, that, that offer us an opportunity, I think, to sort of to see it and to, to, to name it. And, and there's a danger in that, though, too, especially as we think about the news, this inundation that we have, this constant 24-hour news inundation of all of the horrors of the world, and that allows us to point the finger and say, look at that guy over there, look at that girl over there, and look at that horrible thing that that despot did, or that shooter did, or that criminal did, and it allows us to, to alleviate ourselves and say, that's not me. That would never be me. I don't have any place or part of anything like that. I'm good. And I don't think that's true. Because I think in this room, there's lust. In this room, there's greed. In this room, there is hate. In this room, there is hubris. In this room, there is all of the makings of a perfect monster movie. The real enemy lies in the heart. And each and every one of us fights that battle. Jesus says in Mark chapter 7, verse 14, he says, And he called the people to him again, and he said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand there is nothing outside a person that is going to into him that can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he entered the house, so he's leaving the crowd, and he left the people, his disciples asked him to tell them about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also not, not getting this? Don't you see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is, and is expelled. 
Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of a man, come evil thoughts and sexual immorality and theft and murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. If you don't find your own personal sin in that list, um, see me afterward because you're a great person. Because I, I, can, I can see a couple of those that I wrestle with. A couple of those things that I struggle with. Think about the, the, the context in which um, Jesus is dealing. The, 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 the Old Testament, as you remember, had all of these purity laws. So, you know, if, if, you, if you touched a dead person, or if you had mold in your house, um, or, uh, you know, you, you were on your period, you, you, were, you were unclean for a period of time, there was a sense of outward purity that, that, that was in, intensely ingrained in the people. And along with that, there were all these food laws, all these purity laws that you're not supposed to eat, these bottom feeders, so stay away from shellfish, and don't, don't um, eat scavengers, so don't eat, you know, dog and raccoon and things like that, and stay away from pork, you probably know that very well. And they had all of these ritual laws about their worship, that certain vessels within the temple were supposed to be preserved and kept holy. And so they had all of these these lines of outward holiness. And then they took those lines and they expanded them. They added to them things that weren't in the scriptures, things that God didn't necessarily command, but things that they insisted that they kept. So you might remember the story of Jesus going to eat with a bunch of Pharisees, and he doesn't wash his hands before he eats. And they're horrified. You know, like my mom, they're like, go wash your hands. And Jesus doesn't do it. He's sort of thumbing his nose at their, their purity laws because he, his problem, he says, is, is not so much it's that outside stuff, but it's that, that inner stuff. In fact, I remember their obsession or their, their, their searching for this question of what's holy and what's unholy kind of takes itself to extremes. I remember um, learning about as I was studying Hebrew, and I can't remember if it was the Mishnah or the Talmud, but there's a, a debate in ancient Judaism if you have an unclean pot that's empty and you have a clean pot that's full of clean water and you take the clean pot with the clean water and you pour it into the unclean pot, does the impurity of the unclean pot travel up and make the whole thing impure? which seems to me like we're splitting hairs pretty hard right now, right? I mean, like, that seems like a silly argument, but this is a real one that they had because they were very concerned with this outward purity. But what sets Jesus apart is that Jesus is concerned with the heart. We see that going on in Matthew chapter 5 through 7, this Sermon on the Mount, which you probably know very well, where Jesus is connecting the, the, old, the people who are living in this outward purity-bound um, focus to the Old Testament. And he says that wasn't the point of the Old Testament. We might agree that, um, we might agree that everyone shouldn't, you shouldn't commit murder and you shouldn't commit adultery. We would agree with that, I hope. This is not a good thing. But Jesus says that's not the point of the Old Testament law. Instead, the point of the law was for us to capture, to understand the extremes of sin and the extreme to which God despised it. So we read in, this, in the Old Testament this text that says, if a child um, is a rebellious child, they should be stoned outside the camp. And yet I see children here today, right? I mean, obviously, we, we know that there were Jews that survived, and I don't know any child who hasn't at one point or another been rebellious, right? You parents, is that, I mean, anybody not had a child that was never rebellious? 
I, this is universal. Of course we know children are going to be rebellious, but they didn't stone every child who talked back to their parent outside of the camp. No, what it did was it drew their attention to the intensity of God's disdain for rebellion because rebellion against mom and dad is one step closer to rebellion against God. In fact, it's the same thing. And so it draws our mind to how extreme God despises sin. And the point then was Jesus makes as he says, you know, take care of the inside. The point that Jesus is trying to make is that what we should do as we read the Old Testament law is in seeing how much God hates it, that we would abstain from anything that would even lead us down the path towards it. Does that make sense? So Jesus says that the problem isn't necessarily that you're going around knifing each other. The problem is that you've allowed hate to nest in your heart. And if you allow it to do that, then it's going to lead you down that path one way or another. So when God sees you, he sees the heart. He doesn't see what you've done. He sees all of it, and he calls you a murderer. Same thing with adultery. And so what we should be doing is focusing on the inside. And Jesus criticizes then those people who are worried about whether or not he washed his hands, but aren't worried about what's being harbored in the heart. He says, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate. Then the outside will be clean as well. Because if we don't do that, we are whitewashed tombs. And we look very nice on the outside, but inside we're full of dead men's bones. I love the opportunity that we had to partner with IDES, especially yesterday morning. And I really appreciate and applaud all of those of you who came out and sacrificed a few hours. Um, It was fun. It was great. And it makes us look good, doesn't it? A few honest people. Like, I appreciate it. Like, it makes us look good. What did you do with your Saturday morning? Because I wanted to sleep in. I don't know what you wanted to do, but I wanted to sleep in. Emery was livid when she found out she had to get up early on her day that she doesn't go to school. She just, this is her first school experience. And so, Saturday is a very important day. And she's like, this is my day. It makes us look good. But if we aren't concerned with what's going on in the heart, all of that stuff doesn't mean anything. Doesn't mean what you wear, doesn't mean where you spend your time, doesn't mean what you go to church. If you are harboring that junk in you, God sees you for what you are. It's an important point I think Jesus is trying to make, again, because our text for today from Mark chapter 7 is that what comes out of a person's heart is what defiles them. Out of the heart comes all of these things. And I've shown this before, but I want to show it again um, because it makes me laugh every time. This is a comic from Adam 4D. If you've, Adam4D.com, he's got a ton of really great comics, but the mom says to the kid, this is a difficult decision. In times like this, you have to learn to trust your heart. Trust your heart, sweetie. Okay, heart, what's it going to be? Sin. <laughs> little boy, yes, because that's what I wanted the whole time. Because this is the character of the heart. The character of the heart is sin, which is why we put no confidence in the flesh. We put no confidence in the heart. We as Christians are called to search the scriptures. We as Christians are called to sharpen one another. We're, we're charged to search uh, the spirits and test the spirits and see if they are in keeping with what scripture says. And that's what we're talking about and thinking about this month. So if you're looking in your Bible in Mark chapter 7, verse 22... There is a word that is translated in the ESV, which is the version I'm using. I think most of them all translate it the same way. It is deceit. Verse 22 begins with coveting and wickedness and then deceit. 
And I wanted to focus on that. That really caught my attention because, you know, we're, we're easy to, and quick to throw stones at sexual morality and theft and murder and adultery and coveting and wickedness. But deceit, deceit, that's different. What's interesting to me about this is that Jesus does not use the word for lying. There's a stock Greek word that means you told a lie. And he doesn't use that. He uses this word delos. And delos means to use cunning to achieve an outcome. So we might call it deceit, or you might call it treachery. You might call it, I found this, this um, obscure version of the New Testament by this guy, a good game, who called it, um, uh, what do you call it? I don't remember. Monster of underhandedness. The monster of underhandedness, which I think sounds just amazing. Monster of underhandedness. I like the word guile. It's using, uh, by saying something or not saying something, it is using your cleverness to achieve an outcome that you want, whether it is to make yourself look good or whether it's to shrink back or whether it's to make, as Jack pointed out, something happen at work. Right? It is using guile to achieve an answer. And I think we would all say that lying is bad. So if Jesus put lying in there, everybody would nod their head and say, oh yeah, we shouldn't lie. That's a, that's a bad thing. But Jesus doesn't do that. And I think he doesn't do that because he knows if he put lying in there, we'd find some way to guile our way out. Well, it wasn't really a lie, right? It wasn't really a lie. I just didn't say anything about it. Like, I just didn't correct them. Um, I think Jesus is, is saying something different. I think he is using this 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 criticism of vagaries and half-truths and little falsehoods to call us to be the kind of people who have a complete honesty about who we are. Who we are, what we say, what we do. This kind of general honesty. I think kids are a great example of that. Emery was speaking to Laura the other day, pondering her mortality. And she said to Laura, I'm young, and I won't die soon. Not so much for you. And I wish the Nijowskis were here today because, uh, because Ian said something very similar uh, like that to me. He told, well, not to me, but about me. He was talking to Bryn, and, and he said to Bryn uh, that he didn't want to grow a beard because if you had a big beard, it meant you were old and you are going to die soon, which is not good for me because I'm trying to go for wizard. This is the goal. So, uh, you know, I, I love the way that kids, they just like, they, they don't, they, they will often just, they're just straight shooters, right? I mean, they just, they have no God, they have no tact either. And so, like, Jesus is not criticizing tact, but I think what he is trying to get at is that the heart of the Christian is different. That the heart of the Christian, the, the life of the Christian, the way the Christian lives his or her life is one that is just an honesty of person. Just meet you, and I know who you are. I know what you're about. And you don't try to hide or, 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 or change who you are depending on the situation. Jesus suggests that this simplicity of self is what we ought to achieve. In fact, if you remember when he meets Nathaniel, one of his 12, who becomes one of the 12 disciples, he, he sees him coming towards him and he says, behold, everybody look. And Jesus had people around him. He said, stop what you're doing right now and look because this guy right here is a true Israelite in whom there is no, again, our word, delas, no guile. When you meet Nathaniel, you meet Nathaniel. You don't meet Nathaniel for this situation or that situation. You meet Nathaniel. And I think that that is tough, isn't it? It's tough. 
When we learn how to, how to fit, especially as we grow into adulthood, we learn how to, how to fit right in situations so that we can play the situations to our advantage. I know we don't think of it like that, and we wouldn't be willing to admit that normally. But today, just for this morning, let's admit that. That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to maneuver ourselves to look better in front of people, positioning ourselves to have a better position in life or in job. And so we use guile to get there. This kind of thing uh, that Jesus thinks is so praiseworthy seems to traverse very well into the ministry of Paul. And I'm just going to give you this text from 1 Corinthians chapter um, 2, verses 1 and following. And this really stuck out to me because of the way that Paul emulates what Jesus is talking about here. He says, And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest on the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. You know, Paul we know from his sort of autobiographical um, details that he gives us in different places, Paul was trained uh, under a rabbi. He knew how to read. He knew how to write. He was able to, to maneuver very well up the ranks of Pharisaical society. He was a mover and a shaker. He was smart. He was capable. He was cunning. He was able to go into the Areopagus and, and speak and, and argue with the greatest philosophers of his day. Like going into a college campus and going to this, the, the teacher or whatever they call it, all the professors are gathering around discussing all those things and just walk in there and start debating with them and sharing with them the gospel. I mean, that's intimidating stuff. And yet what does Paul say? He says, I didn't come to you with speech that, that, was, that was flowery. It didn't pat you on the back and make you feel awesome. It wasn't using guile or trickery to somehow get you to my side. Instead, I decided to know only this, Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ crucified. No guile. No game playing. This is the good news. Jesus Christ is the coming king. He will restore and he will resurrect and he will judge. And through his death and resurrection and faith in him, you can receive a place in his kingdom. Do you want it? Do you want it? I think that this is a powerful message to, to me as I think about witnessing because I, I don't know about you, but I get nervous talking to people about Jesus. I get nervous talking to people about coming to church. I get nervous breaking into a conversation with somebody that I don't know very well because I think to myself, boy, I better be smart. Right? I better say the right things. I better have the clever answer. I better, I better know how to maneuver this conversation so that, so that whatever happens, I come out looking flowery and beautiful and smart and wonderful. I don't think I ever look flowery and beautiful. But at least smart. Let's at least go with that. And I want to win that argument. And yet Paul here doesn't talk like that, does he? In fact, he points out specifically, he says, I don't need fancy arguments. The power of God is enough. All I need to do is tell you the story of Jesus and how he has hijacked my life. If you know the story of Jesus and how he has hijacked your life, you are ready to witness. You're ready. 
And I don't need to win those arguments either. Not only do I not need those fancy arguments, I don't need to win an argument because I'm not going to save anybody. It is the power of the Spirit that is going to come on you and hijack your life too. It is completely in God's hands. All I can do is plant seeds. And man, for me, that takes away a lot of fear. It takes away a lot of trepidation. It takes away a lot of my feeling like I need to get out there and save the world because I'm not. Not going to do it. But I can be an agent to speak simple truth to people who need to hear it. Invite people to meet other people whose lives have been hijacked by the same Lord and Savior. And that's what we're about here as we talk about sharing Jesus. And that's so important because there will always be another Richard Dawkins. There will always be another person who is capable of arguing better than you. And so if our, if our message to somebody and we bring them to Jesus through a fancy argument, what happens when they meet a better arguer? They're going with that person. And so we depend completely upon Jesus for everything that we do. We are guileless people, completely open, completely honest, not, not mincing words, not shrinking back, but just saying, this is the gospel that has changed my life. I invite you to have your life changed too. We could do that, can't we? Yeah? I like that a lot. I like the way that Paul talks here, and I like how it connects with what Jesus is talking about here. I love how the scriptures just, they interact and they meld together. It's almost as if maybe somebody divine wrote it. But again, this isn't simply rooting us in our witness. It's talking about who we are as people, who we are as Christians. That Christians are utterly different because of our, of our belief and faith and trust in God. And there's a similar thing that Peter says, and I really like this text as well, and he uses the same word there, guile. He's using this text, and he's speaking to the Christians of his day, and this is important because they are facing something very similar to what we are facing in our day. And he says to them, put away all malice, and all, de- all deceit, or all guile, and hypocrisy, and envy, and slander, and like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. Man, that's good stuff, isn't it? He's calling us again to be like children. It's, it's almost like Peter and Jesus knew each other, and, 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 Jesus, and Peter is echoing these same thoughts. And this isn't to be childish. You, if you're not my five-year-old little girl, should not walk around telling people they will die before you. Not okay, right? That's, that's not what we're getting at. We're talking about childlikeness, the ability to stand in front of somebody and simply be who you are. That's what's going on here. He says, put away that kind of guile. Put away any kind of hypocrisy. And as many of you know, hypocrisy is just, it was in those days, a fancy word for wearing a mask. And you would do this if you were in a play. You would put on a mask and you'd pretend to be somebody you're not. We do that, don't we? How many of you walked into church today and somebody shook your hand and you said, how are you today? And And they said, good. And they said, how are you today? And you said, good. And it was a lie. Complete and utter lie. But we all have to pretend like we got to be good because Paul's playing a song. So you can also say, I am terrible today, but Paul is playing. We need to get in there and start worshiping. But see me afterward because I need somebody to pray with. There's no reason to wear a mask here. There's no reason to pretend like we're something we're not. Sometimes life is difficult. Sometimes the days stink. We're here to bear one up one another up in that. 
We're to put away hypocrisy. We're put away guile, put away deceit of any kind and live a complete and total life honesty, to be that honest person in everything that you say and you do. And Paul, or Peter here, takes it a step further. No, I didn't put it up. Did I? I did. Good. Well done. First Peter chapter 2. And I think I started with, I think I started with verse 22 here, but I want to start with verse 21. Um, it says, uh, this is Peter speaking to them, and he says, uh, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered to you, for you, leaving you the example, so that you might follow in his steps. So in other words, the, this, this what would Jesus do thing we used to talk about a lot, or you following in Jesus' steps, you are called to, to mimic Jesus in very specific ways. What specific ways are they? And these verses, and as we read them, if you're familiar with Isaiah 53, you'll recognize the direct quotes that he has in here, speaking of the prophecy that foretold Jesus coming some 500 years before he was born. He committed no sin, neither was delas, deceit, guile, cunning, shady speech found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued to entrust himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now, now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. And what's so important about this is that Peter is speaking to a group of Christians who are a persecuted minority, and their persecution may have been violent. It may not have been violent. It might have just been, listen, you keep your religion in your church building, but don't bring it out here in the world. We don't want to hear about it. And that, that this increased in those days, so much so that Peter is speaking to them, and he's saying to them, what are you to do if you find yourself in a position where your opinion is not valued? Goodness sakes, is anybody here something similar to today? But what does he say? He says, look at Jesus. What did Jesus do? In fact, the prophecy that Jesus uh, fulfills in Isaiah 53 is that he didn't raise up his voice in the street. He didn't shout. He didn't fight back. He didn't use um, clever arguments. He didn't equivocate. He didn't shrink back either. He simply said the truth. He said, hear my words. Hear what I have to say. And that's a powerful message, I think, today. Because there is the attempt or there is the the um, temptation, oops, too early, the temptation to use cleverness and guile to make ourselves look better or to not get into fights with people too. What's interesting, and I, I didn't want to show this, this is one of the oldest pieces of artwork we have in ancient Rome, and it is graffiti. Isn't that great? I think that's great. I and mean, you don't think that's great. I think that's great. Anyway, um, it's so interesting to me. So this is, um, this is Jesus, who is depicted as a donkey on a cross, as you can see. And this is uh, a, a, a guy worshiping it. And the inscription, which is here, that's the inscription there, that says, Alexemeros worships his God. Isn't that great? Like, it is anti-Christian graffiti. That's, 
That's so interesting to me. Now, we have late-night TV shows do it way better, right? So much better. I'm so thankful because that's really poorly drawn, you know. Um, but the late-night TV shows do it better, so that's, that's, that's fun. What do we do when we find ourselves in that situation? What do you do when you find yourself there? Peter says, be bold. Be who you are. Don't back up. Don't shrink back. You don't need to shout. You need, don't need to argue. You don't need to fight. But you simply speak the truth. Don't use any spin whatsoever. Just declare the good news of Jesus Christ. Um, Peter says in chapter 3 of that same book, chapter 3, verse 9, he says, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you would obtain a blessing. So what do we do in the face of problems? What do we do in the face of persecution? How do we use our speech? We use it by simply blessing as much as we can by declaring the truth of Jesus Christ. And all of this brings us back to what Jesus is talking about in Mark chapter 7, verses 14 through 22, where he says that all the things that are in the heart that come out, these are the evil things. And what we should be concerned about and what we should be doing battle with, the battleground of the mind, the battleground of the heart, this is where we are fighting. This is where we are praying. This is the work of Scripture to change our minds, to, to realign our worldviews so that the kinds of things that we do echo out of the kinds of things we feel, the kinds of things that we think. That we would not be a people of guile. That we would not be a people of hypocrisy. But that when people come in these doors and they meet Oakland Drive Christian Church, they don't meet people who are putting on airs, who shake their hands just because it's greeting time. And it's now time for us to shake hands and be nice to one another. But rather that when they walk in the door, they immediately meet a group of people who feel love for one another. In the heart, and it echoes into the actions. And as we leave... And that was one of the memes for the week. And I didn't pick it out. And did Christina, did you pick it out? Where is Christina? I don't even see her. She's gone. What? She's sick? Another one sick. My goodness. Dropping like flies around here. Pray for Christina. Anyway, it's how you treat people after church that shows you what kind of Christian you are. And that's what we're talking about. Right? That's what we're talking about. What is in your heart this morning? Is there a monster of guile? Is there a monster of lies? Is there a monster that is keeping you from God? How are you wearing the mask of hypocrisy? Because now is the time to let that stuff go. Now is the time to, to tear it off. Now is the time to get rid of it. Now is the time to live an honest life. Now is the time to stand not only before God, stripped of all the excess, stripped of all the mass, stripped of all the other junk, but to stand before all the people, to stand before your brothers and sisters in Christ, to stand before the world and be who you are, who God has made you to be. Be honest. Be honest in your pain. Be honest in your love. Be honest in your joy. Be honest in your struggles. Be honest in your faith. Be honest with everything you are, everything you say.